so I get into school, and they have this thing called block scheduling, all of these classes, tons of books that I have to take to class. So mom picks up this backpack for me. It's a good sturdy backpack, and I begin to put all of my books in the book bag. And for those of you that are experiencing freshman year, you realize, man, that book bag weighs like 45 pounds, right? You put that on you. I'm an 85-pound kid. Pick, picking that book bag up, it's like breaking my back. So for the first three weeks of school, I am walking around carrying all of my books. Now, in block scheduling, you only have half of your classes every day. And then the, the other day, so they gave me this locker, but it seemed so far away from my classes that I was like, there's no way that I can use this. So I'm carrying all of my books every single day. And sooner or later, man, I just realized that I'm starting to walk around like this. You know, I've kind of got this hump back and my back is really hurting. And then I realized all of a sudden that I actually can get to my classes and I don't have to take all of my books every day. See, what I was doing is I was carrying this burden of weight that I didn't have to carry every day. There was a better way for me as a student than carrying 45 pounds of books every day. There was a better system for me. And what I found in the scriptures is that many of us are carrying around this unbearable burden of sin. And we think that it's ours to bear. We play the hero and we think, I've got to carry this burden of sin. Only to find out that Jesus, the shining hero of the Bible, has already carried it for us. And he calls us to exchange that as we come to faith in Jesus. So the paradox of what we're looking at today is the burden of sin versus the burden of grace. Now, if you think about what is the burden of sin, everything starts in Genesis, right? So we start in Genesis and we see that one of the effects of the fall, one of the consequences of sin entering into the world is that work would not be easy anymore. It would not be as enjoyable as it once was in the garden. And in Genesis 3, it talks about how Adam would be plagued in his work. He would find that there would be thorns and thistles in his work. This is a consequence of, of Adam's sin. Thorns and thistles plague his work. Now today, do we not experience thorns and thistles in the things that God has called us to? If we, if we looked at our lives, we would say, okay, I've got thorns, I've got thistles as well. And today, I want you to ask yourself this question as, we're, as I'm looking at Nehemiah today, as we get into the text, how is sin manifesting itself in my life right now? It's kind of a heavy question to start the sermon out, right? But how is sin manifesting itself in my life right now? How are thorns and thistles present in my heart, in my life right now? What does that look like? The interesting thing that will happen in Genesis after God pronounces the thorns and the thistles, the consequences of the broken covenant, God would send one that would come. His name would be Noah. Noah was found to be faithful, he and his family, right? They're saved from the flood, they build a boat. They're faithful because they trust in the Messiah to come, one that will actually rescue them. Do you know what the name Noah means? It means rest. You see, the antidote for thorns and thistles is rest because the enemy wants you and I to believe that we cannot rest. He wants us to believe that there is no rest. And so we keep slaving away at the thorns and thistles of life, the things that condemn us, the things that cause us to carry this 45-pound backpack when we realize that we don't really have to bear it. And so God sends Noah who who is a, is a picture of the one that will actually bring, bring rest. We're going to look at this in a few minutes, but 
Matthew 11, Jesus says something profound. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you Noah. I'll give you rest. This is where God wants to take us, church. This is what God was beginning to do in the book of Nehemiah with his people, the Israelites. So there is a burden that we can pick up. So I'll call it the burden of grace. It's not in the Bible. It's just kind of what I'm calling it. When we take his yoke upon us, Jesus is actually carrying the burden of sin. So we are free to be about his work of reconciliation in the world, to carry the burden of grace, to be, to be impassioned with the things of his kingdom and to carry them forward. We're free to do that. So without further ado, let's get in the book of Nehemiah together. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Now, before I read this, maybe I'm old school. If you got a Bible, bring this sucker to church with you, all right? I mean, maybe I'm old school. I don't know. If you don't have a Bible, let me know. I will buy you one. I'll get your name on it, whatever you want. Get in this sucker. I mean, this will change your life. So anyway, off my soapbox, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments... Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and I will bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power, And by your strong hand, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Father, melt our hearts this morning. God, I pray that your spirit would sweep through this place in a way that we cannot leave the same way that we came in. Bring your gospel to come bear upon our hearts. Convict us, but also restore us, just like you you are beginning to restore your people Israel as we study this book of Nehemiah. God, may the Old Testament come alive to us as we see the fingerprints of Jesus all over it. 
Father, for those who are in here today who've, who've never heard of the name Jesus or never experienced the, the power and grace that are in his name, that are in his work, may be present in their hearts today. God, meet us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So let's look, let's, we're just going to walk through this text in Nehemiah. We're going to look at the first four verses. Nehemiah 1, it's interesting because there's some details that are given in Nehemiah 1. It talks about his, fam, his familial relationships. So Nehemiah is an Israelite, son of Hakaliah. So it, it happens in the month of Chislev. So the month of Chislev would be like modern day November, December. So it would be the winter time. Now, it says that he's in Susa, the citadel. Now, the significance of that is that he is in, there's, there's two kind of places that the Persian king spends his time. In the winter months, he's in Susa, the citadel. And so he's with the king there during that time. And we, we don't really know much about Hananiah. He may have actually been his brother or, or maybe just another Israelite. But they come and they, they, they spend some time with Nehemiah. You can tell that Nehemiah's there's already something going on inside of him because he, he's not content to be, to be living the high life in Persia. He's concerned about his people. He's not just concerned about himself. He's not like, hey, I'm good. I'm in Persia. I'm cupbearer to the king. Man, you should see my retirement account. It is, it is flush. He's not content with that. He has a burden for his people. He has a burden for the people of Israel. He has a burden for them to thrive and for them to experience the rest, the Noah that God has intended for them to experience. And then we see that Nehemiah, in verse 3, as, as he talks about this, he, he sees that, that, that the remnant in exile is in great trouble and shame. And why are they in great trouble and shame? Because last week, like we talked about, God has removed his blessing from their lives. And what's been the result of that? Well, exile has been the result of that. So that's, that's really bad. So God has given this promise to them that they're going to have this land. They're going to have this offspring, and he's going to bless them. Well, because of their disobedience, they're in exile. Well, the other problem with what's going on here is the walls have been broken down. So the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, the capital of the promised land, it's no longer identifiable. It's it's in utter ruins. It's been burnt. The gates are gone. Things are not looking Good. And as soon as Nehemiah hears these words, what is his response? He sits down and he weeps and he mourns for like 15 minutes, right? No. He weeps and he mourns and he prays and he fasts for days. Nehemiah is burdened. Now, Nehemiah is a, he's, he's, he's living faithfully in exile. Last week we talked about this idea that, that even though our feet are in exile, that our hearts can be in the promised land. I think Nehemiah was experiencing some of this. He was experiencing God's favor and his blessing, but it wasn't good enough for him to be able to experience that in a foreign land. He had a burden on his heart. Now, I want to stop real quick and, and just talk a little bit about ne- Nehemiah's tears. You know, I had a pastor when I was in high school. I was a part of this church plant that met in a school just like this in a middle school. And we met in the, in the auditorium there. And he used to always say, every time you see tears in the Bible, think Jesus. 
And I think that's a pretty good hermeneutic to look at it and say, okay, think Jesus here, think compassion here. And anytime we see tears in the Bible or anytime we see tears in people, we should pause. We should stop. We should ask. Do you know why we should do that? Because there's something underneath the surface. There's, 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 some, there's a deep desire that has birthed those tears. Now that deep desire, it's either been threatened or it's been fulfilled. And it's birthed those tears that are present in our eyes. Nehemiah had this deep desire, and I know what it was. It was for his people to enter the Sabbath rest that God had intended for them, that he created for them to live in. And more than anything, he just wanted to go home. He didn't care how good life in Persia was. He just wanted to go home and to be with God's people in God's presence, to worship in the temple, to sacrifice, to be where God had intended his people to be. Now for us, when we see those tears in one another, I think God calls us to pursue one another, to figure out why those tears are there. If you have your Bible with you, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. And this week I just found something absolutely fascinating about Jesus. Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why did he have compassion for them? Well, he goes on, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. I think Nehemiah is prefiguring the work in the heart of Jesus in the book of Nehemiah. I think he's, I think he's giving us a glimpse into the heart of King Jesus. It's interesting when you look at Matthew 9, 36, there's this word for compassion. And it's this Greek word. It's a fun word to say, believe it or not. Splachnizomai. Sounds violent, right? Splachnizomai. Splachnizomai. It's this Greek word. And if you work in the medical field at all, you'll notice something that's pretty significant about this, that there's a, there's a nerve, a, a series of nerves, a group of nerves in our body that are called splanchnic nerves. Okay, and the interesting thing about splanchnic nerves is that they are a part of the sympathetic nervous system. The role of the splanchnic nerve in our body is to prepare the body for action. To prepare the body for action. So something that's worthy of tears comes upon our lives, a circumstance, a, a terrible thing that threatens some deep desire within us, and it's, it's, it's like it's been taken away, and it evokes tears in our lives. It evokes pain in our lives. Well, the splanchnic nerve sends signal. Hey, you should start crying. Tear ducts, produce that water. Get it out of their body. In our lives, guys, we were, we were made to feel compassion. We were built for it. We were built to feel compassion. We were built to carry on the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's, put, that, he's put that inside of us. Now, we're going to look a little bit more about this burden of sin in a minute as we look at Nehemiah's prayer. But I, I, want, to, I want to pause for a second. I want, to talk about, I want to talk about desire. I want to talk about burden in the sense of, of having the, carrying on the burden of Jesus. 
All of us have deep desires in our hearts, things that we are passionate about. For some of you in here, I look around, and you are passionate about middle school kids who don't have fathers. You are passionate about impoverished kids that live in the community around us, and you, and you take the gospel to them with a soccer ball. Some of you are passionate you're, you're absolutely passionate about kids that are orphaned. And so you adopt them and you bring them into your home and you treat them as your own. Some of you are passionate about seeing the church really be one and you're willing to do whatever it takes to see those partnerships formed. Well, we've all been given these burdens. And our tendency with these burdens, like Nehemiah has a burden too, it's just forced people to feel the Sabbath rest of God to be home. We've been given these burdens in our, and, and, and they're, they're just burdens. Our temptation is to expect other people to feel the burden the same way that we do. But it's a wrong assumption to make because the body of Christ is so big that what happens is that we bear the burdens of God. So God cares way more than you could ever care about the church being one or, or, or kids, impoverished kids you know, experiencing the gospel in our neighborhood or orphans to be cared for and to, and to receive a home and to, and to be in a family. He cares way more about those than we could ever care about. And so what we do is we embody the compassion, the, the, the splachnizomai of Jesus when we seek to see those things happen, those, those acts of mercy and justice in our community. God put those things there. The scriptures say that our hearts are like stone. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the, the heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can understand it? Have you ever been burdened for something and you're thinking, man, I, I didn't really care about that two years ago, but now I'm just absolutely passionate about it. I don't know what happened, but I'm just absolutely passionate about this certain cause, this, this re racial reconciliation happened in our community. That's another one. We're passionate about those things. And as a church, we've got to be passionate about all those things because God's heart is passionate about all of those things. So how do we embody those things? Well, God gives us all different measures of grace with those certain acts of injustice, and we carry on those things. And as a pastor, I want to champion those causes in all of you. While I can't embody all of those things as deeply as you do, we as a church want to get behind you. We want to support you. And, and some of us maybe need to ask the question, Father, how is the, the, the splachnizomai compassion of Jesus, how is that going to live inside of me? Because some of us, we, we just kind of come to church and it's like, yeah, I'm a sinner, I need grace, and yada, 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 I'm just going to get on with my life. We need to ask God to meet us and to give us, to, to help us to, to bear the burden of grace. And it's going to look different in all of us. But Nehemiah carried this burden around with him. And it wasn't this fleeting thought. It was this all-consuming thought that the gospel had to go forward. That the, the, the grace needed to go forth. That this is why he begins to repent in the prayer that we're getting ready to read. He, he wanted his people to experience that. Now for me, what is my burden? My burden might look different than yours. So, so for me, I... I have a, a deep-seated desire, and I've tried to shake this thing. I've tried to get past it. It's this, it's this passion and desire for people to experience the gospel holistically. So what do I mean by that? It sounds ethereal. I mean that head, heart, and hands. Guys, I can't get up here and preach a sermon without first worshiping in this text, without first being convicted of my sin 
in this text. My, my, my mind, my heart, my hands, they won't let me do it because it's settling for something less than God intends for us. And so this, this text moves me. It moves my heart as I see the compassion of God and the compassion of Jesus and how that lives itself out in me. This is why I always talk about getting God's people connected into community. Because I tried to grow in Christ by just seeking information. I tried to grow like that. And you know what? There was no growth to be found that was transformational. I mean, it was great to get in the Bible, but I needed to be with God's people. Because that's where God's spirit dwells, is in the hearts of God's people. And that's why we say at New City Church that there's, there's one formula for spiritual growth. It's God's spirit using God's word and God's people to change our lives. That's the formula. And so that's why we do the things that we do. That's why we talk about missional communities. There's nothing special about them. They just facilitate spiritual growth because it gets God's people together where God's spirit is dwelling and God does something with it around God's word. I'm passionate about that. And so that's what led us to plant a church. I'm passionate about that. That's why we started the church with a couple discipleship groups that ended up kind of morphing into a missional community. Because we knew that it was about relationships, the Spirit of God manifesting itself in relationships, being directed by the Word of God. That's why we did this whole thing. And that's why now, like, we can't just put on a, a Sunday morning show for you to come and enjoy. We want you to experience the grace of God and fellowship with other believers. That's what I'm passionate about. It's my burden that I carry around with me. So I invite you to ask God the same question. What is the burden of grace that you'd call me to bear? And it may take time for God to show you that, and it may be a bunch of fragments of a bunch of little things. But it's, here's the question to ask if you're searching yourself and asking yourself, what does it look like me to carry out this burden of grace? Ask yourself this question, what is the thing that keeps me up at night? What is the thing that stirs my heart that provokes emotion within me. Maybe I get angry when I begin to talk about it because injustice has been done against that deep desire that I have. Or maybe it's the thing that your heart longs for that you just think, man, God, if you would do that, I'd be forever grateful. I don't know what it is for you. But as I look around the room, I see all of these stories. I see all of these passions, all these deep-seated desires, and I just long for Jesus to do those things in each of you. And I long for us as a church to experience that work together, to experience, to, to carry out the burden of grace together in community. Let's go on and look at the, the prayer of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is burdened, and he prays. Nehemiah's burden, and then he prays. And, you know, the thing about Nehemiah is that he doesn't just pray. He doesn't say, hey, God, here's my agenda. I got the game plan. Look, here's the deal. I got, I, I got the hookup with the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. Look, this dude is, I mean, the Powerball, 1.5 billion, nothing to Artaxerxes. I mean, this guy is loaded. I mean, he, he owns basically most of the world at this time. Look, God, I'll just go to Artaxerxes, and I could probably just say, hey, I'm going to be back. Let me, go, let me go build the home of my kinfolk, and then I'll be back to serve you. He doesn't come to God with this agenda, but he comes to God with this burden. Never once does Nehemiah say, hey, I'm going to go build a wall, God. I hope you can bless that. How do we come to God with our burden? Do we come to him with an agenda and say, hey, God, I hope you'll do this? Or do we come to him 
with this splagnizomai, this compassion that he's given us, and we say, God, let's, let's first, let's adore you. So notice he does this in, uh, in Nehemiah uh, chapter 1, I think it's verse 5 here. He says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands. So last week we talked about Exodus 34, didn't we? And we said that there was this covenant-keeping love that God has for his people. Like even when they can't keep it, he keeps it for us. This, I think the word has said, covenant-keeping love. So he has this covenant-keeping love, and Nehemiah reminds God, hey God, remember this is who you are. This is your identity. You are a, a God of covenant-keeping love. This is who you are. So Nehemiah, as he prays to God, he's reminding himself of who God is. And he's also reminding God of his promise that he made to his people. Notice the next place that Nehemiah goes to. He says, he says this, um, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant. He says he's praying and then he says, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. So we see this, this confession here. Okay, and this is not just the sins of the people of Israel, but this is the sin of, of myself and my father's house. So I'm guilty too. So remember that question I asked you before, how is sin manifesting itself in my life right now? If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 1. First John chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 6 through 10. Um, if I'm honest with you, I would, and I was thinking about how I could preach a sermon to get people to like me. I wouldn't start by saying, hey, you're all sinners, and this is really important for you to understand, right? But for some reason, God's word has it all over it, that, that we need to be very aware of who God is, but also very aware of who we are. Because who we perceive God to be is directly correlated to who we perceive ourselves to be. So let me, let me play that out. Let me hash that out for you a little bit. If you perceive yourself to be a person that sins occasionally, you know, on occasion, you know, I have a little too much to drink or I'll indulge in this or indulge in that. But, but for the most part, man, I'm a good dude. How much Jesus do you need? Just need a little Jesus here and there whenever you indulge just to cover your, your blind spots, right? That doesn't seem to be the type of sin that Nehemiah is confessing or that John is talking about in this epistle. So let's read this. We're going to look at verses 6 through 10. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, so notice the light is not sinlessness. It's exposure, okay? If we walk in the exposure of God's grace, if we walk exposed, what do we have? We have fellowship with one another and that's great, but it's not as great as this. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Well, that's a beautiful promise right there. Let's go on and just play this out a little bit more here. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, this is the beautiful promise. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. 
significant there. So, if we say we have no sin, basically what is John, what is John saying here? If we say we have no sin, he says that you're a liar. And what you're doing is you're making God out to be a liar because God says that you do have sin. So the more comfortable we are being really honest and, and acknowledging the fact that we have sin in our lives, the better place that we are. And so that's why the, the, out of the gate I ask you, how is sin manifesting itself in your life? Because I've been, I've been praying for you all week that God would reveal this to you. And that this wouldn't be kind of a, okay, let me deal with this one thing that's been kind of plaguing my life. But this would be a, a continual part of our personal worship with God. We say, God, show me my sin. Because I want to see more of my need for Jesus. And I want to see more of the provision that Jesus actually has for me. Notice that when Nehemiah comes before the Lord, he doesn't just say, hey, the Israelites, they're jacked up. I'm a little different. I mean, I've got a little bit of sin, so I'm going to pray for that. But he prays on behalf of the sin of his people. Folks, in America, we are absolutely plagued with radical individualistic tendencies. We think that life is about us, and so if we just take care of ourselves, then we're good to go. Nehemiah has a burden for the people of God. When is the last time that you were burdened for the church? When is the last time that you prayed for the kingdom of God to advance throughout the world? When is the last time you were burdened for a country other than America? Let me tell you something. We tend to think that the world is going to hell in a handbasket because because evangelicalism, Christianity in America, seems to be subsiding. Do you know that like nearly every place else in the world, that Christianity is flourishing? Did you know that? What would it look like for us to celebrate with the world where God's spirit is moving in such might and such power? And we could long for that here at home as well. What would it look like for us to zoom out on the lens of our prayer life and to seek the kingdom advancing in the world? Nehemiah does it. He acknowledges this. There's a corporate part of prayer that we, that we just miss. And, and I hope that God brings it back to us, that we could, we could seek, okay, so not only the world, but, you know, maybe in Georgia, maybe in Atlanta, maybe in Lawrenceville, maybe at New City Church. So we just begin to pray kind of in those concentric circles, and we ask God to do a work there. There's a corporate confession of sin. And then notice what Nehemiah does after that. He, he petitions the Lord. So he confesses his sin, but he, then he petitions the Lord. He, he realizes that he has the right as a child of God to come and petition the king. To come and do something mighty. And how does he, what, does he, what does he say about that? He says this. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, Nehemiah 1.8. I will scatter you among the peoples. That's what they're experiencing. But if you return and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. There are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Now listen to this. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So what's happening in Nehemiah? Nehemiah is praying to the Lord, but he's also saying, hey, my, my prayer is not good enough, God. I, I, want, 
I want to see the whole nation of Israel, Israel praying for this same thing. And so that's why he says, hey, listen to my prayer, God, but also listen to the prayer of your people, the longings, the, 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 the pains that are in their heart to return home. Hear their prayer, God. Do a work through their prayer. And as I said earlier, Nehemiah comes to, comes to God and he doesn't have this agenda. But, but notice as he's, as he's kind of closing out his prayer, it seems to be like God is inviting him to participate in his work. He's not, meant, he's not mentioned King Artaxerxes or anything in his prayer until the end. Right? He says, he says, uh, what's the exact words here? Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's speaking of himself in the third person. God is opening up the invitation for Nehemiah to join him in his work. And that's exactly what Nehemiah begins to do. He seeks first the face of the Lord. Now notice when you seek first the things of the Lord, Nehemiah, he prayed for days, so there there was a patient endurance that God let him on. I mean, you think about this. If Nehemiah prayed day in, day out, he wept and he unceasingly prayed and God's people were praying as well. I mean, he, God only answered that prayer one day. Every other day that Nehemiah prayed, God did not answer it the way that he thought maybe he would. In our lives when we pray and God does not respond the way that we want God to respond, I don't know about you, but I get pretty frustrated with God when he doesn't respond how I think he should respond. Every other day besides this day, God didn't respond maybe the way that Nehemiah wanted him to. But he did respond in due time. So there was this patient endurance that marked Nehemiah's prayer life as he sought out the Lord in this. Let's close with uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. We get to King Jesus talking about this, this burden that he has, this, what it looks like for us to come to him. We're looking at Matthew eleven, twenty-eight 28 through 30 here. And remember, kind of the big idea of this is that Jesus calls us to exchange the unbearable burden of sin for the enduring burden of God's grace. So Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Noah. I'll give you rest come to me. So who would this be? All who labor and are heavy laden? Well, this would be creation. Come to me and I will give you rest. This is the the effects of the fall on all of creation. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So God doesn't say, come to me, and that's the end of the story. He says, no, come to me and learn from me. There's, there's a learning involved, church, for us to bear the burden of grace. There's a participation, a cooperation that we have with God's spirit. We come to him and we learn from him. And, and you know why the burden of grace is easier to bear? Because Jesus is carrying the load. We are just cooperating with him. We are walking in step with who God is. I mean, I think about it like this. You know, in the scriptures, Jesus says, hey, you know, these guys, there are these guys that want to follow him. And he says, hey, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. 
So take up your torture device, kill yourself and your desires, and then you can follow me. I think about this idea of of Simon the Cyrene. I don't know if you guys remember, but on this journey that Jesus is taking, you know, out of the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha where he'll be, you know, on the cross, he is carrying the cross and there's this place where he kind of is having trouble with the cross. He's, he's falling down, he can't keep up and the, the Roman soldiers are saying, hey, you got to get it together, man. You got to get up there before sundown. We got to make this thing happen. And so this guy is compelled. His name's Simon the Cyrene, a, kind of a, a mysterious fi- figure in the scriptures. What does he do? He comes and he picks up the cross. He comes and picks up the cross and he helps Jesus carry the cross. Now, did Jesus, I mean, did Jesus could he really not have carried the cross? I mean, physically, maybe he was having some trouble, but he's also God, right? Jesus could have carried the cross. But in this instance, God invites Simon the Cyrene to bear the weight of the cross with Jesus. Now, the cross is getting to Calvary, regardless if Simon the Cyrene can carry it or not, right? In the same way, Jesus invites us to bear the cross with him. He invites us to walk in step with him and to feel the burden that's, that's easy and, and it's lighter, but it's still a burden. So God saves us, he redeems us to fill our hearts with his splagnizomai, his compassion, his burden. Nehemiah is bearing this weight. So the invitation for us today, church, is, is kind of twofold. The first one is this. So uh, some of you in here, I know every time I preach, there are people in here that do not follow Christ and have not given their lives to him. So I, I want to make it a habit to talk about this, because I think we assume that we're in church, that, that everyone's good to go, they've been confronted with their sin, but it's, not, it's never the case. In, in, in your workplace, on your cul-de-sac in your neighborhood, it's never the case that all of your neighbors follow Jesus, and so it's good for us to be confronted with the claims of the gospel. It's good for us. Uh, so the first invitation is this, to lay down the burden of sin. I mean, when I think about the burden of sin, I think about having a huge log chain on my back with a, with, a, with a block on the back of it. I'm carrying this thing to just lay this thing down. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Let me, that burden's not going to go away, but I'm going to bear it for you, the burden of sin. The role of sin in the life of the Christian is to show that you and your flesh are utterly incapable of having joy. That there is nothing that you can do, there, there's no amount of things that you could participate in, there's no amount of good deeds that you could do where you could ever feel good about your life on your own. There's no assurance. We're far too flaky, guys. I mean, come on. You know yourself. The role of sin in our lives is to absolutely drive us to a place of despair. And some of you are in a place of despair this morning. You came in here and it was, you didn't know what God was going to do. Maybe you, you think that God is is real, but you've never really met him. You've never really experienced his heart for you. I'm reminded of this quote by John Owen. The greatest sorrow and burden that you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is to not believe that he loves you. I'm here this morning to tell you that God does love you, that he invites us all. It's an invitation to come to him. Come to him with everything that you've got, that's bearing on you, and to seek his face, to to walk in the light as he is in the light, because that's where there's hope. Now, walking in the light, as I said earlier, is walking in exposure, opening your life before God and saying, 
you know, I think we kind of walk timid in front of him. We kind of say, I really don't want to show you this, but I mean, this is a part of who I am. And he says, come to me. Come on into the, the relationship that I have with the Father, the King of the world, and see his grace. The second thing about this invitation is this, is to bear the burden of grace in Jesus' name, to pick it up. It's to understand this, that when my heart breaks for something, when my heart is burdened for something that God is passionate about, some injustice that's all around us, that it's actually not my heart that's breaking, it's God's inside of me. Because my heart is not capable of feeling such compassion, but it's the heart of Jesus inside of me that God has given to us by his spirit. Ezekiel 36 says, when we come to God, he replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, a heart that can feel, a, a heart that can have compassion, and that's what Jesus invites us to. So my question to you is this, what are you going to do with this today? We're confronted with this reality. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to seek God? Or are we going to walk out the same way that we came in? There's this quote by Henry David Thoreau, and he says, most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with a song still in their heart. Are you going to go to the grave with a song still in your heart? Are you going to seek Jesus and ask him what he would have you to do? What it would look like for you to walk out the splagnizomai of Jesus here in Lawrenceville, here today, here this week. So the invitation is twofold. Turn from your sin, lay down that burden, and pick up the burden of grace. And I would love to talk to you about either of those after the service. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to continue in worship this morning, church. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word has hit us where it needs to hit us this morning. Father, I pray that anything that I've said that's been of the flesh, that you would just erase it from people's minds. If I've stepped out of bounds with, with anything that you wanted me to say, that you would just take that away. And Father, I pray for everything that remains. That you would use it as a tool to transform our lives. That we would take the next step in obedience that you've given to us. And Father, that we would realize that we can, we can confidently deal with sin because you confidently sent your son Jesus who bore the cross and confidently rose from the dead. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about the resurrection and the implications of grace for the, for the Christian. So remind us of that this morning. It's in Jesus' name.